Why researchers fall for Area 51 cover story, David Icke's conspiracy theory on shape-shifting reptilians is going mainstream, FOIA requests on fast walkers and skinwalkers, which is official terminology for UFOs, has been denied, Tony Rodriguez does a field trip to Inyokern, California, to confirm forced labour as a 10-year-old in a remote viewing program. David Adair interview part three, Escape from Area 51. Cliff Hyde jumps off a cliff with his claims about Elohim. Elena Danan continues to release first-hand information on the Anunnaki and Ia Enki. French space hubs in the U.S. cities may be a sign of future disclosures of a joint French-U.S. secret space program. Open source science research on super soldiers is at least 30 years behind classified programs. Tucker Carlson confides that his sources are telling him about dark spiritual forces behind the UFO phenomenon. Ella Labane on the Gog and Magog War in the Middle East and the appearance of the city of Jerusalem mothership and claims of official agreements with extraterrestrials is far more than speculation. You're listening to Exopolitics Today with Dr. Michael Sala, your source for the uncensored truth regarding the human, extraterrestrial, global, and political agenda. Click the like button and subscribe to this channel. And now, here's Dr. Michael Sala. Well, welcome to the December 30 edition of Exopolitics Today, the week in review. This will be the last one for 2023 and uh, we expect there to be some really major developments for 2024 and I will start to cover those from the very beginning of January. So for now let's look at some of the stories that caught my eye over the last week in terms of exopolitics developments. So there was a story that was put out uh, by Anne Jacobson who wrote a book about the history of Area 51. And uh, in her book and in this tweet that she put out, she describes, she gives a brief history of Area 51. And she says that the classified base, Area 51, opened in 1955 after two CIA officers, and she names them Herbert Miller and Richard Bissell, chose the dry lake bed as the perfect secret facility to test the CIA's first space, pl space plane, the U-2. Now, that is absolutely correct. That is the official story. That, But the problem in terms of Anne Jacobson's coverage of this story is that it is the cover story that we know, and that has been confirmed uh, by the uh, Edward Snowden releases, that when we're talking about sensitive, com uh, sensitive uh, compartmented information, especially when it comes to uh, unacknowledged special access programs, which are the highest, more the most highly classified programs in the U.S. military and the intelligence community, that these special access programs, the way in which the secrecy is maintained is that an official cover story is created for those, or there's a cover program. So there's a cover story and a cover program 
behind which this more deeply classified program operates. So when it comes to the Area 51 facility where you have this location, the Groom Lake location, where you have the spy planes, the U-2, the SR-71, and the re replacements uh, for the SR-71 being developed at Groom Lake on these very long runways there. That is a cover program because that is in itself a classified program, but it's a cover program for a more highly classified set of programs, which are these special access programs that are unacknowledged that are occurring at the adjacent Papoose Lake facility, which is called S4 or S2. And I think that this is where a lot of major researchers get caught up because when you do FOIA requests or when you do interviews with uh, witnesses, they are going to be much more forthcoming on the less classified program. They're going to tell you all about the cover program. So they're going to tell you about, say, the U2 program and the SR-71 program at Area 51, uh, but they're not going to tell you anything about the more highly classified programs at the S4 facility. And so you just put out your information about this cover program and act as though that's the story. But I think this is the problem uh, with a lot of conventional researchers. They get caught up in the cover story. And so we need to always remind people that even though uh, a, a researcher like Annie Jacobson, who, who, who I believe and I have read some of her work, is a, is a very competent researcher and does some very good field work in terms of interviewing uh, whistleblowers, people that have been part of these cover programs. Uh, but the problem is that these are cover programs, that the, the real UFO-related or extraterrestrial-related programs are happening um, at a more highly classified program, and that is where you're going to have to deal with uh, whistleblowers or witnesses who are much more sketchy and they're not as ready to be openly identified and often will hide behind pseudonyms. And and we know this. This is this has been the pattern. Uh, Edgar Fouché, uh, he is a good example of someone who revealed what was happening at the S4 facility at Area 51. He, he came out uh, in uh, towards the end of the 1990s. I think it was 1999. He gave a lecture at a, at a MUFON program where he presented the existence of the TR3B program and the Aurora program that were occurring at the S4 facility at Area 51 at Papoose Lake, and he worked there, but he himself couldn't reveal what he directly did because he had signed non-disclosure agreements, but he could reveal what others had told him because that's anecdotal. So that's what we're dealing with often in finding out what's really happening in some of these programs. But that's changing now with the David Grush uh, testimony. So hopefully we learn more uh, in this new era about these more highly classified programs that are hidden 
by the cover programs such as the YouTube program at uh, Groom Lake at Area 51. Now, here's uh, something that I, I thought was very interesting. This was a tweet from David Icke, and he said, amazing how these people are claiming there are hostile interdimensional spiritual forces influencing the human ant farm without a single mention of the man who has been ridiculed for decades for, th for saying this and exposing the detailed evidence in a stream of books and videos. It's an extraordinary lack of respect for the one who dared to speak of these things and take all the shit alone for doing so. Now they claim it for their own nearly 30 years later. They, I mean, there is a lot of truth in what he's saying here. And, and I think yeah, this is uh, something that is, is coming up by uh, many uh, researchers and more recently Tucker Carlson, and I will talk about a tweet from Tucker Carlson where he talks about this, this dark spiritual force behind the UFO phenomenon that puts him in fear and, and that he's very reluctant to talk too much about it because it is a, a big problem. Well, David Icke points out that since the 1990s, he's been talking about this dark force. And as you can see uh, from this uh, meme here uh, showing a reptilian, I was right about current events decades ago, and I'm right about this. Laugh all you like. So David Icke in the 1990s, uh, I believe his book, The Biggest Secret, came out in 2000, but he was talking about reptilian shapeshifters being this dark spiritual element behind the control of the Earth's population. Uh, so he's been talking about this for, you know, uh, this is his third dec decade in talking about it, and he's absolutely correct that I now, all of a sudden, you have a lot of, Sources talking about this dark spiritual force, but they're not acknowledging uh, Ike's role in breaking that news back in the 1990s. And you know, David Ike is a pioneer in revealing the truth about reptilian extraterrestrials influencing human, human affairs. And he and Alex Collier uh, were talking about reptilians' draconian manipulation in the 1990s. And both of them got a lot of blowback for that. Now, they weren't the only ones. There were some other researchers, uh, such as Carla Turner, uh, who was talking about this in the 1990s, about draconians or reptilians, uh, through her abduction research. And she, she died uh, in what some believe may have been a, an assassination. So... And David Icke and Alex Collier both got a lot of blowback for talking about uh, reptilians back in the 90s. So, yeah, I believe that they, they are correct, that this dark spiritual element behind the UFO phenomenon does involve reptilian extraterrestrials. So John Greenwald, who is the founder of the Black Vault, where he, he he's done thousands or maybe tens of thousands now of FOIA requests, and he, he has a wealth of information on his website that is well worth uh, doing a deep dive in. And he, as other researchers have, know, have found out, that what the official jargon for UFOs is in terms of uh, Defence Department's circles 
is or has been fast walkers and slow walkers that rather than pentagon say air traffic control talking about ufos they talk about oh we you know we've got a fast walker here or a slow walker here and that's that's a euphemism for ufo and so john greenwald applied uh putting some FOIA requests and uh, he was denied on national security grounds and i think this is uh very interesting uh here's his article where he says space force says documents on fast walkers and slow walkers all exempt from disclosure so that's the black vault and so you can find if you go to the blackvault.com you can see this article there where he talks about space force uh, denying documents on fast walkers and slow slow walkers on these national security grounds so you know this raises a very interesting question which is that well with the passage of this uh, UAP records collection that was incorporated into the National Defense Authorization Act for 2024. Uh, this is the kind of um, the gutted version of the UAP Disclosure Act that was kind of removed from the NDAA for 2024. And what remains is the creation of this uh, records collection in the National Archives. So in a way, it's a kind of small step forward because it means that now you're going to have a dedicated archivist within the National Archives who's going to get all of the records from the Space Force, the National Security Agency, from the uh, Air Force, Space Force, uh, the CIA, the National Geospatial Agency, all these different uh, defence and intelligence uh, organisations that have their at the moment their own separate kind of ufo collections some of them are made available some aren't made available that all of those now will be absorbed or integrated by the national archives and made uh, made available online so that will make it a lot easier in terms of gaining access to a lot of these ufo records historic records that have been acquired by different organizations within the military intelligence community in the United States. Uh, but the problem is going to be the same as with FOIA requests such as John Greenwald has experienced, which is and if any of these records are deemed to violate national security, you know, if any agency, say the uh, National Geospatial Agency or the National Reconnaissance Organization or office, if any of those say, well, we don't want that record to be released in the National Archives, even though the record is older than 25 years, because everything older than 25 years automatically should be declassified unless there is some national security reason for not releasing it, they can be withheld. And as John Greenwald has discovered, you know, with Space Force, um, if if you have any records on uh, fast walkers and slow walkers uh, that are older than 25 years, then presumably that would also be subject to 
this national security exemption. So they won't, won't be released through the National Archives. So that is the weakness in the current system. Uh, previously, under the UIP Disclosure Act, uh, there would have been a nine-person review board that could have been much more aggressive in getting access to those records. Uh, but that certainly is a weakness in the system that ultimately uh, this agency can claim an exemption on national security grounds. Okay, Tony Rodriguez, he is a 20 and back witness. In other words, he is someone that went through a 20 and back program where he was forcibly recruited into a secret space program. Uh, but what makes Tony's testimony unique is that uh, he was forcibly recruited when he was 10 years old into one of these 20 and back programs, and it was done as punishment. And so for the first six to seven years, I think it was seven years, he was used in various capacities uh, as a remote viewer. He was trained in remote viewing, uh, so then he could participate in a drug running program out of Peru where he would use remote viewing skills to be able to help the drug runners evade the drug enforcement agency aircraft and traps and so forth. Then he was used as a sex slave in Washington State and Seattle. And then he was uh, taken to the moon, to Mars and then to Ceres uh, where he spent close to 13 years uh, working in the dark fleet. So what Tony did was that he went to this location in Inyokern, California, which is right next to the giant China Lake Naval Facility, which is, as I recall, the biggest Navy facility in the United States. I think it's a million acres from memory. And he was sent there in 1982. And he said he was there in these portable buildings. And he as well as a bunch of other children, several dozen other children, were tortured as they were put through uh, these protocols for learning how to remote view. So they were subjected to drugs and all these various kinds of tortures uh, to be able to enhance their remote viewing abilities because they were going to be used in a remote viewing program uh, of interest to a say, a whether it's a drug running program or it could have been um, organized crime, it could have been a secret space program. Uh, so Tony, he went to this location in Yukon because he, he remembered it. And he says that he recognized some of the buildings. So he, he recognized some of the buildings. So here he is. Uh, so here's... This is Inyokern here. So this, this image here shows Inyokern. And these portable buildings here are what, what Tony recognized from his time there at Inyokern. So what you have here is field work by a witness. So here you have the three portable buildings. Uh, another one, uh, he described um, a medical facility that was also part of that. Uh, area that he was subjected to back in 1982. So he went inside and he recognized the interior of these portable buildings. And 
yeah, he was very emotional about it because he recognized uh, where he slept as a 10-year-old, uh, where he was tortured and all the, where all the other kids were slept and tortured and, and put through these remote viewing protocols. So it is field work to confirm, to corroborate that he went through this training that was part of his overall 20 and back program. So when people say uh, these 20 and back witnesses have nothing to support their testimony, well, Tony Rodriguez, he's actually done field work. He's gone to Seattle, Washington, where he was able to confirm some of the locations and people that he has not yet publicly named that were involved in the sex trade. And he knows uh, a lot of details about celebrities that were involved back in the in the 1980s. But he hasn't named them. He uh, is very prudent about naming people that could lead to a lot of problems for him. Uh, and he also has gone to Inya Kern, California, where he has also identified, he knows the names of some of the trainers, or at least one of the trainers involved in this, but again, it's very prudent in what he reveals publicly. Eventually that will come out. So yeah, go watch this trip to Inya Kern with Tony Rodriguez on Journey to Truth. He actually uh, went there with, uh, with Tyler, one of the co-hosts of Journey to Truth. So well worth watching that. So that was really great that uh, Tyler accompanied Tony to Inga Kern to, to gather that corroborating evidence. Okay, so let's move on now. Okay, yes. Uh, now we'll go on to this. Uh, on December 25, Christmas Day, I released part three of the David Adair interviews, uh, Escape from Area 451 uh, and Forced Recruitment into the, into the U.S. Navy, David Adair interview part three. So David talks about what happened after he encountered this, extraterrestri this ancient extraterrestrial space engine at Area 51 in the underground area, and he, he identified it as very close to Groom Lake, Several layers, uh, several levels down, this very large craft that was billions of years old, but it had crash landed on Earth, I believe, a hundred million years ago, and the consciousness of it, the Katra, I think he used that that term from Star Trek to describe that the Katra of that space engine went into him, and he called it Pithalum. So. He was rescued from Area 51 because of his uh, close relationship with uh, Curtis LeMayne. So he went back to, to school. He was 17 in 1971. He went back to school, and in 1972, he graduates. Uh, but he was given the choice. Well, he was only released from Area 51 or from uh, the hold that the CIA had on him by him promising to serve in the military uh, once he reached that legal age of 18. So sure enough, uh, once he graduated from high school in 1972, uh, at his graduation ceremony, two men in black forcibly took him out of the graduation ceremony and drove him up or took him to a CIA facility where, again, he ran into Dr. Arthur Rudolph, 
And this was a German paperclip scientist that really um, just just really had it in for David Adair. Just didn't like the fact that David Adair held these secrets and had outsmarted him um, at their earlier encounter back in 1971. So again, David had to be rescued uh, by uh, General Curtis LeMay and uh, on the condition that he would serve with the US Navy. And that's what happened. He was recruited into the Navy and he served four years in the US Navy from 1972 to 1976, um, repairing uh, uh, naval aircraft engines. And then he was recruited uh, into, uh, to, into naval aviator school to become a aviator to fly jet planes off an aircraft carrier. So he did the training for that. He graduated from uh, Naval Air School, began to serve on an aircraft carrier, and then uh, another unusual set of events, he gets recruited by the Office of Naval Intelligence. And uh, so for the next uh, close to 20 years, he's serving with the Office of Naval Intelligence, doing all kinds of missions. And so in this interview, he describes those missions. So, so some pretty wild missions. And this really kind of like gets us up to speed with uh, David Adair's official naval service. Now, proving you serve with the Office of Naval Intelligence is no easy matter, but David has two honourable discharge papers from the US Navy. One uh, comes from his service as an uh, aircraft engine repairer and the second comes from his service doing uh, some of these other things that he, he described in terms of um, being a naval aviator and serving with the Office of Naval Intelligence. So these are some of the documents that I show in this interview. So that's part three. And part four will come out on New Year's Day, on January 1st, 2024. So that'll get uh, 2024 off to a big start as we uh, conclude with part four of my David Adair interview series. Now, let's look at this story. Uh, now, here was something that was very interesting. Now, Cliff High, he, he is someone who has been very prominent on the internet now. I think he, I first saw him doing coast-to-coast -coast interviews, uh, talking about webbots back in the early 2000s. And then I think he did his final interview on coast-to-coast -coast in 2010. Now, um, exactly why that he hasn't done any interviews since then. I mean, I can speculate, but I know he's made a lot of predictions. Some of those predictions he believes have turned out to be accurate, but I know a lot of the predictions have not turned out to be accurate. But nevertheless, uh, he does have a very compelling story about webbots being re a reliable, predictive source for understanding what is coming in the future, and he's gathered a big audience and big following for that. So fair enough. Uh, I, I, I know that there is something to what he is saying. So this is where now he gets into an area that I thought was very 
very dicey, where he now is starting to talk about the uh, the Elohim and space aliens. I mean, this is, I mean, I know he has talked about these topics often on over the years, but now he's he's done a deep dive into those topics and putting out a lot of information. And now the problem I have with his information is that he is using AI assistance. I mean, he actually says this in his article. He says, and let, let me go to his article so you can see it for yourself. So here's, here's Cliff High's uh, article on Substack. Uh, Elohim, current capacity in contention. So this document is an historical literature review and analysis conducted with AI assistance. I mean, why in the world would you use AI in doing your analysis? Several different AI were used in its preparation. So he's using AI in putting together an analysis and an overview of the historical role of the Elohim. And, and, and he's saying he's making some pretty broad, sweeping generalizations here. The goal of this analysis is to obtain an assessment of the contention capacities of the Elohim and off-world species who have proven themselves to be the enemy of humanity. Okay, all right. Well, you know, you're using AI to develop your analysis and to prepare an article. Okay, now to what extent is this analysis? Uh contingent on him using uh, data from web bots or other sources. He doesn't really identify that. He just makes these sweeping claims about the Elohim being dangerous, being monsters. Okay, so here's, here's my comment about uh, Cliff High's commentary about the Elohim as, quote, brutal and murderous to humans. And he further asserts in his article that the Elohim, quote, that, quote, Elohim consume humans and consider humanity as their property and as their source for meat animals. He, end quote. And then he provides a long list of mental illnesses suffered by the Elohim due to a long-lived, long-lived mind. Now, I don't know where he got that information. I mean, to me, he just kind of pulled it out of thin air. I mean, how in the hell would he know the long-term illness, mental illnesses suffered by the Elohim as a result of long life. I mean, how would you be able to prove that? I mean, uh, I mean, did he get that from his AI assistance? Um, and then he goes on and believes his review is necessary because of, quote, humanity's adversarial relationship with the Elohim who prey upon our species, end quote, and, quote, due to the temporal proximate of the Elohim and now return to active contention with his species, end quote. So in, Elo, in other words, what he's saying here is that the Elohim are coming back and that because they in the past have exploited us and beaten us and um, murdered us, that there's going to be violence, that there's going to be a war with them. So he's predicting that they're going to return and we're going to go to war against the Elohim. So uh, now here's my responses to Cliff High's venture into this area of the Elohim, ancient extraterrestrials, the Anunnaki. Okay, so then 
my first comment is if he wants to do a genuine historical review of the Elohim. Now, I, I have my sources, but I think if you want to do something objective, something that is not biased in any way, I don't think you can go beyond researchers like Paul Wallace and Matthew LaCroix. Because um, these two researchers have put out books that I think uh, give very objective, neutral analyses of the Elohim and the Anunnaki and what they mean, what that means today. And in their research, you find that you, you have both the bloodthirsty, domineering variety that Cliff High wrote about. So Cliff High, he's correct, partly correct, that some of the Elohim are exactly as he describes, bloodthirsty, murderous tyrants that have preyed and exploited humanity for centuries and millennia. So I don't have any problem with Cliff on that score. But there is also the other side. Uh, there are also compassionate empathic Elohim that want to protect and help humanity. That if you go to some of the Sumerian ancient texts like the Atrahasis, they describe this conflict between the different factions of the of the Elohim or the Anunnaki. One wanting to do, uh, wanted to punish and exploit humanity and the other trying to help protect humanity. So in the Atrahasis, uh, there's examples. You have like Enlil, and the Enlil faction bringing about pestilence and famine on humanity, and the Enki faction mitigating that, helping humanity get through that, those very trying times, and similarly with the flood, helping humanity survive a flood that was orchestrated by Enlil. And that throughout the Sumerian texts, you find this struggle between two factions of the Anunnaki, the negative faction and the positive faction. Now, and this is where I object to Cliff High, and I'll, you know, I'll be honest, I got angry with him because you need to distinguish between friend and foe. We need to be discerning here. We can't generalize. Too many people, too many researchers and people generalize. They say all aliens are positive or all Elohim are positive or all the... Elohim or all the extraterrestrials are negative, dem demonic. I mean, they're both. They're just like us, or we are just like them. You know, and that's not a surprise because our genetics are derived from the Anunnaki, from the Elohim. So we have both extremes. We have very loving, compassionate humans that will do anything, sacrifice their lives to protect life and and serve life, and the others, other side, which will. Uh, like psychopaths that will just exploit and oppress people and murder them without a second thought. So the Anunnaki and the Elohim are just the same. So when Cliff goes down this path of generalizing about Elohim and the Anunnaki as evil, oppressive beings, and that anyone arguing to the contrary are Elohim worshippers that, you know, me bringing this up and, and Cliff Hyde, that's exactly how he responded to me. When I brought this up, he said, Salah's and uh, uh, Salah is an Elohim worshipper. Fuck him. You know, I mean, it's like, what? I mean, you know, this is the problem. You know, Cliff Hyde, he put out an article on December 17, 
um, and he invited people to respond. He asked for researchers to respond. So that's what I did. He invited a response. So I gave him my response. So then he tells me to F you, Sala, um, and, you know, saying I'm an Elohim worshiper. And it's just like, hang on, I, I just brought up some problems with your analysis. And you're, you're not even bothering to acknowledge that, yeah, there are different factions of the Elohim uh, or the Anunnaki and that we need to be discerning. So I think he really needs to, if he's going down this path of focusing on the Elohim as returning and then going to become a problem where we have to go into open warfare with them, I, I think he is generalizing vastly because you know, quite aside from the objective neutral analysis of Paul Wallace, of Matthew LaCroix, the information I've been getting from other sources, such as uh, Elena Danan, Alex Collier, uh, James Gilliland, and a few others, the Elohim have returned or the Anunnaki have returned. The positive faction have returned. The positive ones, the, the negative faction have had to leave. So the positive ones are back and they want to mitigate things. They want to atone for past injustices wrought by the negative ones. So we need to be discerning here. We need to really understand what's going on. Okay, so that's my response to uh, Cliff High's December 17 historical review on the Elohim. Okay, so this is where we get into Elena Danan's information about the Anunnaki or the Elohim. Uh, and she talks about the Ia or Enki in particular. And so let's look at her webpage. And, and I think this is well worth taking a look at. So just go to uh, elenadanan.org. So here she has a webpage uh, talking about Ia, Ia or Enki. Uh, who is the leader of the positive faction of the, Anuha, uh, of the Anunnaki or the Elohim? So, and and these are and she gives a you know a, a synopsis of the different figures that were part of this Enki faction, or well, actually, um, all of them. Uh, so you have Anu, the the, uh, the the patriarch, the father, uh, the father of all of the Anunnaki, and and you have some of these. Uh, in Inanna, Nima, uh, you have Enlil here who has reptilian characteristics. You have Tia, the mother of Enki, oh, sorry, of Enlil. Uh, you have uh, uh, this is uh, Dominica, who's Ia's first spouse, the mother of Marduk. And here's Marduk, you know, resplendent looking being. Uh, so you, you have different Anunnaki here, uh, different Elohim. Some that are part of the positive faction, some that are part of the negative faction, and 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 what Elena Danan is trying to do is to educate people that there are different Elohim, different Anunnaki, and we need to be discerning. And I think that is absolutely correct, and it matches the information from the ancient Sumerian texts that Paul Wallace and Matthew LaCroix, and many others. I mean, you, you can go to Zechariah Sitchin. You know, Zechariah Sitchin, he also is someone that has done an incredible amount of research on the Anunnaki. Uh, but the problem with Sitchin is that he is compromised because he has been 
associated with the cabal. So there are questions about Sitchin's agenda, but I think when it comes to Matthew LaCroix and Paul Wallace, I think you get a very neutral, objective appraisal of the entire corpus of the Sumerian literature without any spin. So, yeah, I think uh, Elena Danan gives us a perspective which is very important because Elena is saying she is having face-to-face encounters with Enki and other members of this positive faction of the Anunnaki or the Elohim. And she believes that they are very benevolent and here to help. So this is where we need to keep an open mind, you know, not jump down that bandwagon that the Anunnaki or the Elohim are all evil oppressors that have exploited humanity in the past, don't trust them, that this is just the good cop, bad cop routine, don't believe a word of it. You know, we we need to be discerning. Uh, We need to be wary of all possibilities. But let's be fair and look at all of the data and don't just jump down the fear-mongering camp because I think a lot of the fear-mongering is involves a lot of generalization about these beings. And I don't care if you're talking about Anunnaki or Elohim or you're talking about extraterrestrials as all being demons. It's the same thing. People generalizing about these beings that we know very little about as being overwhelmingly either evil or overwhelmingly positive. Okay, so here's a... Space news story uh, that I thought was very interesting. France to establish new space hubs in Denver and Houston. So France is through its um, national space agency, CNES, uh, is establishing these space hubs in these two major cities, Colorado and um, in in Texas, uh, Denver and Houston. So why is that important? I thought it was interesting because we have had a number of individuals who have said that they have been part of a joint US-French secret space programs, that Jean-Charles Moyen and David Rousseau say that they were part of this joint program and that they served on a mothership called the Solaris and that there's also been sources saying that the French are about to reveal or soon the truth about this joint French-US secret space program is going to be revealed. So that suggests the possibility that these space hubs that have been established in Denver and Houston uh, by France could be part of the kind of like white-worlding of this uh, these highly classified secret space programs. That, in, in other words, these secret space programs have been unacknowledged special access programs for decades now. But in bringing these into the open source literature, you need to prepare the, the groundwork for that. So I think this is what these uh, French US space hubs in Houston and Denver are all about or could be. So something well worth exploring. Okay, so here is a story that came out in the Western Journal. Journal. So it says that Pentagon scientists weigh creating human super soldiers so deadly they'd eventually have to be terminated. 
So this is an article describing the creation of super soldiers for the battlefield. And so they're de describing how these super soldiers could be created. Um, you see, here's a, a quote. Enhanced soldiers would be reduced to bionic men who run fast, do not need to sleep, eat and drink very little, and can fight all the time. A new species is born, Homo robocopus, one slide said. So they're, they're talking about the creation of the super soldiers. Um, and so, of course, this is a presentation at, at an event, at a conference, where Pentagon scientists are discussing the possibility of creating human super soldiers in the future. Now, the thing is that as a general rule of thumb, open source technology is about three or four decades behind the classified versions. So if they're talking about creating uh, bionic soldiers now or cyborgs now that can qualify as super soldiers, they're talking about that now in terms of open science or open source science, you can be sure that 30, 40 years ago, similar ideas were subject to research and development 30, 40 years ago. So what has happened in the subsequent 30, 40 years? Well, we know from multiple whistleblowers or witnesses that have come forward that there have been secret, uh, um, there have been super soldiers that have been created that have served in secret space programs. And so uh, super soldiers exist. They've been around for decades now. And I think, again, the groundwork is being laid for eventual disclosures that super soldiers, as well as secret space programs, as well as extraterrestrial life, all exist. As disclosure rolls out, the public is being prepared for this. So I think this is part of the reason why we're having a, a lot of this information coming out in open source science conferences. Okay, so this is where we get Tucker Coulson's latest comments on UFOs and extraterrestrial life. Very revealing. And uh, what he says is that his sources are telling him that the UFO phenomenon doesn't necessarily involve extraterrestrials from another planet. That what his sources are telling him is that there's a dark spiritual force that has been here a long time. And this to me kind of like is what earlier on I mentioned David Icke kind of pointing out that there's just more and more people now going down this track of there's this dark spiritual force that is unknown, enigmatic, uh, that uses UFOs or is in some way associated with the UFO phenomenon and, and that that is operating behind the scenes. So David Ock has been talking about that for decades and now Tucker Carlson is going down that track. And he is being told by his sources that, no, no, uh, Tucker, these aren't extraterrestrials. These are some kind of interdimensional beings from the inner earth and that they can come in and out of dimensions and that they are a dark force kind of like along the lines of what david ike was saying yeah these he was talking about uh, these reptilians being a fourth uh third density um extraterrestrial or you know, 
beings that these are beings that can move between these different dimensions fourth fourth dimension third dimension and so i think what's happening is that tucker carlson is having information fed to him about the ufo phenomenon which is slanted towards this negative perspective that the extraterrestrial phenomenon probably doesn't involve or the ufo phenomenon or well they don't even use extraterrestrial they use the term non-human intelligence if, if you look at the uap disclosure act or, or the language that was behind that and the language that is being used now in terms of you know what is associated with uh, ufos or uaps they don't talk about extraterrestrial they talk about non-human intelligence so that could mean yeah you know, an inner earth being that could mean a fourth fifth dimensional being uh so it could mean anything. It could mean an extraterrestrial. So Tucker Carlson is being, I think, being fed information that's skewing his perception <coughs> down this path that, or uh, towards a narrative that this non-human intelligence is a dark, enigmatic force that we don't understand that has been here a long, long time and that they are associated with what in the past have been called demons and angels. And so that, it's enigmatic. We don't understand it. And so what's happening is that this is the narrative that the military intelligence community is putting out. They've been putting it out for a long, long time that, you know, we don't understand what this non-human intelligence behind the UFO phenomenon is. It's enigmatic. We don't know. Uh, we can only speculate. And so this is the problem uh, because the truth is they do know. Some of these are off-world extraterrestrial visitors who are very enlightened, compassionate, that want to help us develop advanced technology so we can take our world into the 22nd century. Um, and But others are very manipulative, uh, power-oriented beings that want to exploit us as a resource. So it's known. Um, but as far as what is publicly being pushed and right now in terms of what we are witnessing coming out uh in terms of the major news sources and it's not just tucker carlson it's ross coulter it's uh george knapp jeremy corbell it's um the, to the stars academy it's uh it's people uh, such as uh, Lou Elizondo, uh, that group that come out of the uh, the ATIP program, that group that's associated with it, they are all pushing this narrative. And, and David Grush is a part of that as well, pushing this narrative that this non-human intelligence, we don't know what they are. They're, they're enigmatic. Um, and it's dark. It's a dark force that's associated with what in the past have been called kind of like angels and demons. Whereas the sources that I've been putting out, that I've been focusing on for, for decades now, um, have been trying to present the data from the contactees. And these contactees go back to the days of George Adamski, Howard Menger, uh, more recent contactees like uh, Alex Collier, Elena Danan, people that are presenting data 
about these positive extraterrestrials that are here interacting with our world. Now, these that positive extraterrestrial narrative is being totally ignored. It's being sidelined. No one in the mainstream is bothering to interview these people. I mean, I, I don't believe Elena Danan has been invited on any of these programs. Uh, it's only those people who talk about negative extraterrestrials that or this kind of non-human intelligence being demonic, enigmatic, abductions, a lot of the negative stuff, that they're the ones who are being given a lot of exposure in the mainstream media and a lot of these UFO researchers that are getting a lot of prominence on News Nation and so Tucker Carlson and a lot of these networks, you know, they're focusing on those particular narratives. So, you know, this is a problem. Um, and hopefully Tucker, Tucker Carlson uh, will eventually get to hear that there is a positive aspect to this. And, you know, I, I just believe we need to be aware of both. I, I, I don't really care whether people like Tucker Carlson, Ross Coulthard, um, Jeremy Corbell, George Knapp, that crowd believe the the positive extraterrestrial narrative. What I think is important is that you consider it with the same degree of openness and scrutiny and analysis as you consider information coming from those talking about these uh, demonic or dark extraterrestrial forces. Okay, so here is a interview that just came out on Thursday, December 28, Alien Gods in the Bible, Gog and Magog War and Arrival of the City of Jerusalem, an interview with Ella Labane. Now, I've, I've known Ella Labane for quite a few years now, and so this is the first time I actually got to interview her, and it was, uh, it was very good uh, because she is a long-time contactee and researcher. She's written, I think it's a uh, five books now so five books or five volume non-fiction book series entitled who's who in the cosmic zoo and i think book six is coming out in 2024 and so she's put together uh, an incredible amount of data about the extraterrestrial phenomenon and she is doing her best to try and discern the motivations of different extraterrestrials. Now, I, I think uh, what she does in this interview is present her life story, her exposure, uh, her kind of like uh, background uh, in terms of being a Christian but also being Jewish and how that has led to tensions within both of those communities. Now, what she presented in here is a perspective on this war happening in Israel-Palestine at the moment as a fulfillment of prophecy. And this is the Gog and Magog war. And in the book of Revelations and also in the, uh, I think it's the book of Ezekiel, if I'm correct, in the Old Testament, they talk about the Gog and Magog Wars. And in the, in the Gog and Magog War, Israel will fight an alliance of regional actors that invade it, that go to war against it, and Israel will stand alone against it until 
it is rescued by the Messiah. Something along those lines. And so Ella describes that. And so in Ella's take on that, she believes that, okay, so that's going to happen and that she believes that uh, as this Gog and Magog war plays out, Israel goes to war with its neighbours. And we're seeing right now that uh, this, this war in the Middle East threatens to expand at any time to involve other nations such as Lebanon, Iran, possibly Turkey, and and Russia is also involved through Syria. So this Gog and Magog war can expand very, very quickly and that Israel will stand alone against all these enemies. And she says that, well, there'll be this violent conflict and she believes that Two-thirds of Israel's population will be wiped out. I mean, that's a pretty dire prophecy, but that's her her perspective and that millions will die in the region and there will be a nuclear conflagration. And then at some point, you, you're going to have this giant mothership arriving called the city of Jerusalem. And it's a mothership that she believes is associated with Atlantis. Okay, so is that true? Is Could that really be happening? Well, I, I did a webinar on November 25 where I talked about the Gog and Magog War. And I, I don't believe it's a fulfillment of prophecy at all. It is something that has been scripted and totally contrived and manufactured by the deep state. And we know that because there have been individuals that have come forward to expose that. Uh, we, we have, for example... Uh, a four-star general, Wesley Clark, who in 2001 was told that six Middle East nations were being targeted for attack uh, in this kind of war on terror out of 9-11. And these six nations, uh, Somalia, Syria, Lebanon, uh, Libya, uh, culminating in Iran, had nothing to do with the 9-11 attacks. Uh, but yet... Here they they were all part of this kind of like sequence of wars that was going to be rolled out over the next uh, few years, according to the information that Wesley Clark got from another general within the Pentagon. Uh, then you have Kerry Cassidy and uh, Bill Ryan with Project Camelot in 2010. Uh, they came out with the Anglo-Saxon report. And so they talked about uh, a kind of similar uh, effort to contrive a global war uh, using the Middle East and, and involving Iran, and that would eventually spread um, involving China, and that, that would also be a version of this Gog and Magog war. And more recently, we have what has happened in Ukraine and Russia. And Ukraine and Russia, that territory, that area is part of what histori historically was known as the lands of Gog and Magog. And, and so... Why was this war in Ukraine contrived? Well, I believe that, and in, I stated that in my webinar, November 25, that this was because there is an effort to contrive an end times Gog and Magog war. The deep state is trying to do this. So this has nothing to do with the fulfillment of biblical prophecy. It's using biblical prophecy as a script to contrive global events to bring about catastrophic destruction in different parts of the world and to perpetuate deep state control. So this then raises the question, 
how does the city of Jerusalem fit in? Is the city of Jerusalem going to be this kind of like event that El Alabain described? Or could it be part of this alien, this contrived alien savior event that a number of researchers have been describing for a for many decades. Uh, the first researcher to talk about the alien savior event, I mean, people think about the, uh, the false flag alien invasion because they think of oh, Werner von Braun, Carol Rosen, uh, uh, Stephen Greer, that you know, it's all about an alien invasion. And it's like, now that was only part of it. You, you've got to go back to Serge Monast, who is a Canadian French researcher who wrote this book called Project Bluebeam in French in 1955. And soon after, he died of a heart attack. But he didn't talk about a false flag alien invasion event. That was part of the scenario. But what he talked about was an, an alien saviour event, an alien saviour event where you would have these advanced technologies, hologram technologies and so forth, being used to contrive a saviour, uh, where you would have aliens arriving in big motherships and so forth, and you would have Jesus or the Messiah, Isa, Kalki, whoever whoever your whoever your saviour is, kind of like appearing, you know, using holographic technology coming out of it to get the world to buy in to the idea that we're being saved and the Vatican would, would kind of be part of that. So could this city of Jerusalem be a part of that? Um, some people believe it is, that the city of Jerusalem is part of that narrative of a false flag alien saviour event. Um, and Ella Labane believes that, no, no, uh, the city of Jerusalem is part of this genuine Kind of like return of the Messiah event, which is going to happen. So, uh, I personally, I think that we are that this city of Jerusalem is more than likely part of this false flag event. Uh, but nevertheless, uh, I keep an open mind. <clears throat> okay, and, and if you want to learn more about that, uh, I give you uh, here here are the links on my thread, my Twitter thread. Uh, if you want to watch the uh, webcast that I, uh, the, the webinar I did on this, um, there it is, This the exopolitical state of the planet. Um, it's available on Crowdcast and also available on Vimeo. So you can just go to my exopolitics.org site if you want to watch that, that webinar. It's the last one I've done for 2023, well worth watching. And also here is the contrary case about the city of Jerusalem. Uh, this is on the Elena Danan Telegram channel where she gives her view on the city of Jerusalem mothership. So a very different perspective. So my goal is to like present you all the data so you can make informed choices for yourself. All right, so here's the last tweet I'm going to be covering today. And this is a comment from Jason Wilde. And uh, he brings up some provocative ideas. And I, I follow him on, tw on Twitter because I think he does 
a, a fair job to raise awareness on different possibilities concerning extraterrestrial disclosure, different uh, beings. And here he is introducing people uh, to the possibility of agreements with extraterrestrials. Uh, so unveiling a cosmic betrayal, a deep dive into the alleged broken agreement between the US government and extraterrestrial beings. And so he describes uh, his kind of like deep dive, which he believes to be kind of controversial and speculative because it's using the hypnotic regression sessions uh, conducted by uh, Dolores Cannon, where she, in her series of books, described these agreements between extraterrestrials and, and governments where positive extraterrestrials offered these life-changing technologies, uh, but they were betrayed by the military, by the intelligence communities who weaponized these te these uh, technologies as opposed to releasing them for the for the good of humanity, and so I, I think he's correct that that is exactly, and I think that that did happen. So, I, but what I wanted to point out in responding to this tweet by Jason Wild is that this it goes beyond speculation. That this is not speculation. If you're just going to use Dolores Cannon as a source. Fair enough, it's speculation because we're talking about hypnotic regression sessions and so, yeah, this is not fact because this is people saying, okay, this is what I remember, past life memories and uh, you have therapists analysing that and so, you know, at best we can say, you know, that's data, it's kind of soft science data, uh, you know, what kind of value we attach to it, people will differ on that but we can put it under the high, under the kind of rubric of speculation if you like but the point i wanted to make is that um testimonies about alien agreements um go way beyond speculation what we have is whistleblowers credible whistleblowers and here's a list of some of them uh phil schneider dan sherman bill uhouse charles hall Daniel Morris Salter, and I'm currently working with an insider, uh, JP, who's active US Army, and he is participating in these programs that are a result of agreements between extraterrestrials and militaries and intelligence communities uh, within the US and elsewhere around the world. So these agreements absolutely exist, that this is whistleblower testimony. And as we know, whistleblower testimony is admissible in a court of law. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's, it's first-hand eyewitness accounts of what is happening. So this is not speculation, and we shouldn't treat it as speculation. This is eyewitness testimony of agreements that have been withheld from the US and the world population for decades. Um, so all of these individuals speak about agreements with grey aliens. Now, this is where uh, JP, he doesn't talk about grey aliens, he talks about Nordics a lot and ant people uh, and some other non-human looking uh, beings. Uh, but generally speaking, these individuals that I mentioned are eyewitnesses, uh, whistleblowers, to agreements involving grey extraterrestrials working with government uh, and military organisations. 
Uh, th so these are all eyewitness accounts, are all admissible in a court, court of law. Uh, so you know what we need to do is start to look at some of the eyewitness accounts of contactees, people who have had direct contact with the extraterrestrials. Because as I mentioned earlier, contactees are kind of disregarded. They're, they're kind of like held out because their narrative is contrary to the narrative that is being pushed now by the military intelligence community. That is that UFOs involve a non-human intelligence that we know nothing about, that's enigmatic at best, at worst is a dark, malevolent force that has been exploiting humanity for centuries or hundreds or, or, or thousands of years. But the contactees give us a different narrative, which is why they're being ignored. So we, uh, we need to look at contactee testimonies. And when it comes to agreements, you know, we need to look at testimonies concerning these 2021 Jupiter Accords, that in 2021 uh, there were agreements that were reached between national space agencies uh, involving the United States and 14 other, well, there were 14 space, 14 major spacefaring nations that were represented at the Jupiter Accords in 2021 that reached an agreement whereby there would be an executive council that would be headed by U.S. Space Command to coordinate Earth's spacefaring activities and relationships with extraterrestrial civilizations, and that Jupiter would be a hub for that. And in fact, there's a giant space station being created, being built above Jupiter at the very moment, which is called the hub. So we need to look at that data as well. So, I mean, these people that I mentioned earlier, uh, we're talking about Phil Schneider, Dan Sherman, Bill Uhouse, Charles Hall, Daniel Salter, and so forth. They talked about agreements that were reached in the 50s, 60s, 70s, and so forth. What's happening today? Where do we get real intel on what's happening today? Uh, the whistleblowers can't tell you because, you know, if they did, they'd be eliminated. Uh, JP is an exception. He can talk about these things because, as I described in my two-volume book series on JP, agreements have been reached between the Nordics and the Air Force for him to be able to disclose this. So that is part of the agreements, that he can disclose this. So that is an exception. But these other sources that are talking about the uh, Jupiter Accords, the contactees, they need to be looked at. All right, so that closes out uh, the Week in Review for 2023. Uh, 2024, I will begin uh, with my first Week in Review on January 6th. And so that'll launch the 2024 season. I think 2024 is going to be an incredible year of disclosure. I'm going to have my first webinar in February. I think it'll be February 6th. It'll be a Saturday. And well, actually, no, I think it's February 3rd. Uh, anyway, first Saturday in February, I will have my first webinar. I will announce that. It'll be what's coming in 2024, where I will go over what I think are some really exciting developments that point to 
major disclosures that are going to happen, that we are going to have what is called catastrophic disclosure, that that's kind of like entered into this kind of mainstream narrative now. So we're going to have catastrophic disclosure. So I wish you well. I hope you all have a fantastic uh, New Year's celebration on New Year's Day. And I look forward to seeing you in 2024. So thank you for uh, supporting uh, and subscribing to my channels and for uh, being here. So aloha. You have been listening to ExoPolitics today with Dr. Michael Sala. Please remember to like, share, and subscribe to this channel. Join or start a conversation in the comments. Take the time to explore the vast library of best-selling books, webinars, and podcasts by Dr. Sala. Visit exopoliticstoday.com.